Huntsville in History uncovers the stories of Huntsville, Alabama, the first city of the state and the site of the region's oldest archives. Based on court cases and primary sources of the time, historian John O'Brien and co-host Ben Job guide you through the bizarre, surprising, and sometimes deeply troubling records that make up Huntsville's history. It's been a few months since we've done one of these. Oh, uh, we were trying to do stuff more often, but it turns out writing a book is hard. So I just kind of dropped off the face of the earth and mm -hmm. didn't really talk to anybody for a hot minute. Just did book. Dude, I like to ask people about rituals. Did, is there a writing ritual? Is there a way that you get in the in the mode, in the right mode? In the in the zone? Yeah. yeah. Um, I listen to rain sounds or cicadas on 10-hour loops that I find on YouTube. And then I do, uh, I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro method. What's that? Name? It's, um, you go and you, you go to like tomatotimer.com and you just click and then it starts counting down from 25 minutes. And the basic idea is just work for 25 minutes. Yes. I did not know there was a name for that, but I follow that method as well, my friend. Yeah. I just go for hours though. I mean, that's what usually ends up happening is you like, mm -hmm. you get in it and you're like, gotta do everything but heck yeah so i think being a cicada listener makes you a true southerner but i don't know they may have those out west or cicadas are worldwide i know in china they have them right and in, parts of japan like in canada i think like the northeast in canada there's not too many i remember encountering canadians that came down here in the summertime and they're like why are the trees screaming at me you know like <laughs> It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> They're yelling. I used to... When they I want to make babies. When I was a kid, I didn't realize it was cicadas, and I thought it was just the trees were... Like, steam was coming out of them because it was so hot, and that's what the... Nice. Yeah, I thought the... The sun was making the trees yell at me. <laughs> it's like when you throw a lobster in the water and it boils. And yeah, yeah, escaping. It's like that, but with the trees. I was just like, "That's what's <laughs> happening. That's the that's where fog comes from." Heck yeah, <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> you had it way figured out, oh. dude. You would have been a naturalist back in the day. <laughs> You'd be like, "Guys, no, let me tell you." I would have been a terrible naturalist. I would have been like, I mean, you would have misled people way off the <laughs> scientific course, but they would have believed you. That's all I'm saying. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> but man, to, okay, so I've listened to some rain tracks and like just to, it's good for just white noise, keeps your brain going, but do you ever hear any weird like background stuff in the rain tracks or the cicada tracks where you're like, that's not supposed to be there? Um, I'm just a very paranoid human, so I'll just like, I'll be like, was that, a, was that an alarm three streets away and like rip my headphones off and run out of the office and then i'll be like it's completely quiet right you should calm down john with the the white noise you can just imagine whichever alarm you please exactly like <laughs> it just lets your brain go like hey man i remember a really good siren we heard about three years ago <laughs> and i've been i've been uh cleaning the studio for like 10 hours so my brain's all cables at this point but the Bell Tavern comes up in this story, which I was very happy about. The Bell Tavern comes up all in all of them. Mm -hmm. I was one of two. There were probably more than two places to get a drink in Huntsville, you know. But like, there was the Huntsville Inn and the Bell Tavern, and then um, I think there was like a 
another place somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I remember from seeing like an 1823 drawing of Huntsville by Sarah Huff Fisk, mm-hmm. uh, where she described or named like, oh, this thing is a hotel that I haven't seen referenced right. since. But um, yeah, Bell Tavern, big deal. <clears throat> Kind of like the main place to go and do things. So at the Bell Tavern on the evening of August 7th, 1820, uh, two gentlemen were drinking pretty heavily. All right. As they do. Well, more than two guys were drinking. (laughs) uh, So this will be Reuben Turner and Thomas Logwood. Um, They are longtime friends, business Mm -hmm. associates, partners. They know each other. we find out later on that, you know, they've done, like, the most bro thing you could do back in the day, which was service security on another person's, like, business venture. So, like... They're that co-signer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They co-sign. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the other person messes up suddenly. Oh, no. I'm stuck with all of this money. <clears throat> so... Reuben Turner is going to end up becoming a media sensation in early Huntsville. And the first one you told me. This is like the first big, the news is on the corner. Yeah. (laughs) This is one of the first sort of large things. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll get to that later, but most of the early newspapers were just like ads. Like that was it. Like you'd... Like and, to, and based out of somewhere else, like a uh, bigger city or something? No, we we did have a newspaper in Huntsville. Mm-hmm. We had several newspapers in a row. Uh, we had, like, the Madison Gazette, uh, which became, uh, I think very briefly for a few months, like the Huntsville Gazette, which became the Alabama Republican, which became the Southern Democrat. So was this all one paper that kept kept metamorphosizing or were these was there ever any competition <clears throat> this is this is going to be like the one local regional right. newspaper mm-hmm. that just over time yeah yeah it's like the same guys running it john boardman uh ran the madison gazette which you know the madison gazette uh was printing news in 1813 you know we had uh one of the Magahas. Yep. Had a little jail From escape. Previous episode. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of repeat offenders <laughs> in all these. Like, I don't know how much... You cover a lot of years, but we keep seeing the same names come up. Well, that is one of the great things about uh, this, mm-hmm. is that it is a community. It's really like, this is sort of a long-term study of a community, and you're going to have a lot of people show up. And they're going to show up more than once. And so it's really neat mm-hmm. because it's like, oh, well, they're all related. There's all these connections. You could make a good show out of it is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. yeah. I feel like we need most wanted posters, though, because <laughs> we have so many, like, <laughs> for corn beating or Absolutely. ear cutting or whatever, which we'll get into later. Yes, the ear cutting. <laughs> so, the second part of this series. So Reuben Turner... Uh, who is going to be, end up becoming like super important later on and like the talk of the town is very drunk at this point and threatening people. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, he has threatened a man named Samuel Bennett. Uh, 
Now, Samuel Bennett is an interesting character because Samuel Bennett actually did make it into the book. All right. Yes, because there was uh, Samuel Bennett had this long running like enmity with a man named Richard Pryor and Richard Pryor would like, you know, pistol whip him and threaten to cut out his veins and all kinds of stuff. And so Samuel Bennett is just, I think, sort of used to used to abuse. Uh, and this is just another night of somebody verbally threatening <laughs> yeah. to cut off some part of Sam Bennett. Pretty <laughs> much. Remember Sam Bennett in some way. That's just, that's what his life is like. He's just like. You can only imagine either people are just automatically violent or this man is extremely abrasive. <laughs> He's the guy you go to the bar and you're just like, crap, Sam is there. Right, uh, cut his damn ears off. <laughs> that's that's the kicker. Uh, according to a lot of people, Reuben Turner was threatening to cut off Samuel Bennett's ears. Samuel Bennett himself, <laughs> I love this part, denies it. <laughs> that's only on Thursdays, guys. No, on Tuesdays, oh. he was like, I don't personally remember. <laughs> this man threatening to cut off my ears, but it could have happened. <laughs> and like, that's, that's one of the little beautiful, honest tidbits where you think, yeah, the honesty <laughs> showing through. <laughs> and so, uh, Sam Bennett is getting yelled at by Reuben Turner. Reuben Turner is waving around a knife, mm. uh, very like aggressively. And he's talking to Bennett about why Bennett hasn't loaned him any money in a long time and then threatening to cut off his ears and then he brings up an argument they had a few years ago and then and this is Samuel Bennett's own words he did ask me to go drink <laughs> <laughs> he's like all right you're terrible you want to you want a shot <laughs> I hate you. We all know I want to cut parts of you off. Let's get drunk. Yeah, and so what else are we gonna do? And so Sam Bennett watches him go and put whiskey in the glass for himself. And then Sam Bennett says, My memory is treacherous, but I wished to get away from him. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to drink, but <laughs> I don't want to be around this guy. Mm -hmm. Um and so, been waving around a knife, the barkeeper, uh, actually, his name is Theodoric L. Smith, he comes over, and he gets the, like, owner of the Bell Tavern at the time, and I knew at one point who was the owner, like, right then, but there, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. that own the Bell Tavern throughout its very, it, its history, and so, the owner has to come over and be like, dude, Quit waving, quit waving around a knife. What, what are you doing? And so, you know, Turner puts it away. And then he runs into a man named John Estill. Mm -hmm. And John Estill is like a constable or whatever and has previously given Reuben Turner a fine uh, because he owed some money on a horse or something. To somebody else, most likely. <laughs> right. <laughs> And Ruby. so Reuben Turner sees really? this random dude, John Estelle, and then he calls him a damned rascal. And mm. I don't know if you can see yeah, in your copy of the notes, in the actual thing, they, they had like a capital D and a dash and a lowercase d. 
and then the word rascal with two L's and a K. Called him a damned rascal. Yeah, and in the notes, they uh, they bothered to censor that. Yeah, yeah. So they they usually would. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, well, they would usually omit the e. Like that's hmm. the thing. They would write out the word damn, and then they would do a little apostrophe and then the D. And that takes up as much space as the E. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to like keep and it the doesn't word censor from, anything. Like if a child read it, they'd still exactly. be like, damn. D- and so <laughs> in this one, they have this capital D and this dash and the lowercase D and then rascal with the K and the two L's. And it was like such a it's just real quality stuff right there <laughs> like it's the it's the good it's the moments that keep me going um do we we need to totally get a picture of the manuscript there so we can like put that on the front page of the yeah sure um so and then you have Thomas Logwood who no one is really talking about Logwood running around uh, waving a knife at people, but uh, Doctor Whedon. Um, a lot of people know the Whedons, of course, from uh, Howard Whedon. Uh, you know, great local artist who mm-hmm. we can. There's there's a lot to unpack with Howard <laughs> Whedon, so we won't. Well, not today, but but like the Whedon family was important in early Huntsville. You still have mm-hmm. the Whedon House downtown. Um, I think there's a Whedon Mountain. Really? Around here. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, a lot of there's like a But our ma- mountains are kind of like There our mountains are footprints. <laughs> they're little they're little bumps. There's a Whedon there's a Whedon mosquito bite somewhere right, around yeah. here somewhere. <laughs> um But yeah. So this guy's already uh waved a knife around at a bar, threatened the guy that everybody threatened, so that's not really that <laughs> that's, weird. Yeah. And then he yelled at a cop. <laughs> and probably waved a knife at him. I don't know if he's gotten put away the knife at any point. He has put the when the bar okay. when the when the tavern owner came over and was like, "What the hell are you doing?" Get he was out. like, "I'm putting the knife away. I'm just gonna go yell at police officers now." <laughs> yeah. So Thomas Logwood, who is his companion, uh, Logwood has uh, was described by Frederick Whedon, Dr. Whedon, as being very turbulent mm. when he drank. And uh, they were both pretty fond of the liquor. Mm. It makes sense. This was uh, this was the period of U.S. history where we drank more alcohol than any other country on the planet. Uh, we Getting ahead yeah. of the curve. <laughs> so really, uh, the United States, the first 40 years are really weird and so by 1830 you know it was super cheap to just make a bunch of whiskey i was about to ask like i imagine it'd be whiskey because corn is just huge and i imagine it's always been huge well for a very long time people drank rum just because Mm. rum was cheaper to right bring in imported or grown here uh, well, I mean, it was cheaper to, you made the rum in Jamaica and like the bigger yeah, slave plantations in the South. Yeah. So places with sugar production would produce massive amounts of molasses mm. and then you would come and make large amounts of rum in, uh, 
in the colonies, like in New England, and people would drink just oodles of rum. But uh, there were a few tweaks to whiskey stilling technology around this time period, and people started selling sort of pre-built stills. And so they're nice. Yeah. And so this combined with the fact that, you know, in the Ohio Valley in the United States or in a lot of the early valleys uh, that we settled or like colonized or whatever, um, vegetables, corn specifically, obviously just grew really well. And so you had some of the lowest food prices in the world in parts mm-hmm. of in like these second tier states in the in the US like these new frontiers that are opening up you have incredibly low food prices everyone is producing too much whiskey they're using whiskey even as a medium of exchange and by 1830 if i recall correctly in the alcoholic republic which is a book about this time period and drinking yeah um a the average wage laborer working one day out of the week could feed their habit could feed their whiskey habit for the entire week wow yeah that's dangerous <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> dangerously cheap it it was it it was one of the things that really like the temperance movement takes off around this right. time you have pretty much everyone's like you shouldn't drink you should drink only cold water you know like mm-hmm. they were trying to replace they were trying to replace liquor with things like cold spring water or coffee or uh, there was even a beverage where they would just take corn mush and pour maple syrup into it. And that was supposed to be fake milk, fake milk. Yeah. Even the sugary corn (laughs) mash. (laughs) Yeah. Even though they lived on farms, it could be difficult to like, it could be difficult to produce enough milk for right. like market and local consumption. Mm-hmm. Like it can't, can't store it. And like, exactly. That's another it. one. It has to be fresh. It has to be immediate. And you know, if you don't watch out, you're going to get milk disease and die from that. Mm-hmm. And the cow go and eat milkweed and right. then you're poisoned. So this whole idea of, you know, like milk is being, you know, like abundant or even water or even beer. It was whiskey and cider were the two right. things Americans could drink. That was a whole tangent. So I, so I, I've got another question for the tangent though, and I think you might have the answer. Was corn uh, native? I know it was native to some parts, but was that like already a wild variety? You said it was just growing out. Well, so corn, I mean, yes, as it was is, then, is is from the Americas. Mm-hmm. It was probably domesticated in the valley of in like mexico central mexico Mm. valley of mexico whatever um by about 1000 a.d or ce whatever timekeeping scale you Mm -hmm. want to use um there were varietals of corn that were suited to the landscape in the eastern north american woodlands and plains regions so so yeah, probably wild corn. Uh, no, no, it was being. It was, it's not I mean, like it was, it, it was like. It's not like volunteer corn, right? You know, like when corn just grows in the middle of a field, and you're like, ah, dang it, and you gotta go, 
Dig it, it, it out. It would be like um, semi-nomadic people or nomadic people like planting. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. During, um, after like the archaic period, you had, you had the woodland and the Mississippian periods in the mm-hmm. Southeast primarily. And so during the woodland and Mississippian period, people just had a bunch of corn. There's this huge shift to a corn-based diet that you can see. Because prior to corn, people just ate a lot of oysters. Really? And mussels and stuff. And that was huge. Like, this, uh, their Tennessee Valley has a huge variety of, like, freshwater mussels, right? Or it used to. Yeah. It uh, no longer does. Thanks to the microplastics that we throw yeah, in the river. Yeah, that has been tragic. I told I told people that, and they just didn't believe me. For one thing, they didn't believe me that we ever did have freshwater, like mussels. <laughs> and then they're like, hey, they're going extinct. I don't believe that either. Like, oh no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <sighs> Alabama is like it's a biodiversity hotspot. There's so mm-hmm. much here that you really can't find anywhere else. And it's just frustrating because yeah. no one cares. It feels like. Yeah, it it does. I feel there's um. And you know, I should know the name of the nonprofit that goes out there and tests like around the plants and stuff. Uh, is it Tennessee River Keeper Keeper Association? Yeah. yeah. But they they go out there and randomly check, and they're always under fire from industry. Just for checking the water. <laughs> I mean... Like, they're kicking them out. They're, like, sending uh, private police forces after them. It's a, it's a special thing down here, y'all. I mean, 3M out there poisoning the entire city. Of De- well, I mean, we were, yeah. we were even talking... The entire city of Decatur. We were talking about um, Aniston a little earlier. Yeah, before yeah. we started, you know... Mm-hmm. Before we started putting this together. And, I mean, Monsanto had to pay every adult in Aniston $9,000. Because, like, chemical companies, this kind of stuff doesn't happen in places where people are organized Mm -hmm. or where government is responsive to the needs of the locals. Everyday citizens, yeah. Yeah, but Alabama, Alabama is the largest trash importer in the United States. Hmm. Like, we serve as just a dumping ground for all of our neighbors we have all of this natural beauty that's being destroyed. Everyone's getting sick. Like the yeah, our public health, especially rural health, is in a very bad way. Yeah, just getting basic health care is a rough spot. And also, the, I think they're fighting about the coal ash pits, like near the river now. Yeah, which they're like they're fine and very safe right there beside the river. I remember Alabama Power decided to put a coal ash pit down on top of a reservoir for a wetland Uh, and everyone was like what are you doing and then the state environmental agency was like it's fine great it's fine put going ahead and put a coal ash pond down on top of the reservoir for the wetland no one it's fine it's not gonna go wrong i know that there's only three feet of dirt there (laughs) (laughs) it's good dirt it's that red clay so you know it's not going (laughs) that dirt's gonna hold oh bless hey uh send some money to Tennessee valley river keepers free plug for them they're on topic (laughs) so these guys get on their horses bffs 
Um, or they're already on their horses at this point, aren't they? Yeah. So when they leave the Bell Tavern, they go, they get on their horses, they start. Ruby and Tommy. Ruby and Tommy. That's what I'm calling them. <laughs> All right. I hope you are good with that. Yeah. And I mean, are they okay with it? We don't know. Yeah, um. So they start riding down the street. Now, it is supper time in Huntsville, so everyone just goes to the Bell Tavern and eats a bunch of pork and cornbread and drinks whiskey and goes home. Uh, Alcoholic Republic also has another amazing example or uh-huh. like a little section on like the diet of the average American during this time period. <laughs> well, I would love to read that. <laughs> and it's just... There's this great part where a visitor from Sweden is in Alabama and they get a three course meal and the first course is just bacon. <laughs> like just <laughs> and then they get um like the second one is just salt pork and then for dessert like the last one they get they get just very large pieces of bread soaked in whiskey I knew it was soaked in something <laughs> <laughs> soaked in whiskey and a glass of milk and there you go and they're like all right man this is terrible food <laughs> my body i'm sweating <laughs> oil <laughs> and you know and you wonder like everyone was like drunk and every everyone was like whiskey drunk and eating re- grease and just eating grease and really <laughs> needed to like take it And there wasn't a great way to wash your hands, and, like, no wonder they were just killing each other left and right. Like... It's only half-built. I mean, it's (laughs) the wilderness. Don't pee in the spring, guys. Don't pee in the spring. (laughs) So, they're going, and George C.A., who is the only direct witness... Mm. There's so many people that are witnesses for what happened. The Raven and Knifen and the Bell Tavern folk. Everyone saw this dude in the middle of the tavern making an ass out of himself. And then afterwards, there were a bunch of people that were like, I found this one guy and he was doing, you know, there's a lot of people that are there before and after the fact. But during it, one man, George C.A. George C.A. And I think he's walking to supper or he had just left. He's walking down the road. They're arguing. And Turner wants to. George C.A. describes both of them as being tolerably groggy. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out what that means. (laughs) Groggy means you're drunk. Right. Yeah. But they're tolerably wasted. They're. They're good. They're good enough to ride a horse. They're good and toasty. Yeah, these are some toasty folks. Like if you put a little bit of jam on them, there, that's breakfast right there. That's how toasty they are. So <laughs> Turner's like, I want to go back to the tavern and talk to this man that's going to Virginia. And then Logwood is like, No, the hell you're not. And tries to grab the other, tries to grab Turner's horse's bridle. Mm. At that point, Turner's like, what? And then George C.A., who has gotten about 10 steps past them, turns around and is watching uh, Logwood beat Turner with either a horse whoop or his cane. 
right? Just beating them. At that point, they both fall off of their horses. And there's like a very brief confrontation. Mm. Um, Struggle ensues. Pretty much. So there are a handful of guys that have that immediately after this show up a man named James Long was eating his supper that's where I got supper from uh and overheard the fight and he ran out and he found logwood on the on the ground and logwood was uh Thomas Logwood Tommy as we call them yeah Tommy Ru- Ruby and Tommy here okay so Tommy has got his knife out mm. he's waving it <laughs> Tommy's like I've been stabbed I don't and so so who knows if he even had it out before he got stabbed he may have just right flexively so James Long out. I mean yeah so James Long comes over and is like what are you doing and Tommy's just like who are you like mm-hmm. the few people that described law or interacted with Logwood after he got stabbed in the chest were like, yeah, he was a little rude. And it's like, dude, dude <laughs> he got stabbed. stabbed. <laughs> Dude's in pain. He's real mad at you right now. Like, so James Long. Everyone's waving a knife in this story. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's waving All the a main knife. characters wave a knife at some point. And then the judge waved a knife to start the court case. <laughs> uh, doom, doom. Knife wave. Knife, knife. Clink, I tried. Clink. Yeah. Clink, clink. <laughs> clink, clink. That's what we're going to edit in now. Clink, clink. Everyone <laughs> uh, gets your knives out. It's times for Hunt's villain. I don't know why I put so many S's in that. Ugh. Gets your knives Get out. Get your knives out. <laughs> it's times. It's times. <laughs> And so then another fella, Alex Morgan, heard the fight and was like, well, if someone got stabbed, we got to go look at it or we got to go, you know, generally is what happens is like someone gets stabbed and then immediately everyone's like, well, I just had to come over and help. Right. You know, they're going to get up in the business. Oh, yeah. These are the most gossipy folks. (laughs) That have ever lived, and everyone you'll see from the bell. Everyone, you'll see, you'll see some of that later, that gossip. So Alex right, Morgan, he goes, and he finds old Ruby. So Ruben Turner, after stabbing a man in the chest, runs to the courthouse. <laughs> runs to the courthouse and. Barricades. Obviously, yeah. yeah. What, what else do you do when you stab somebody? You're like, I got to go to the place of judgment and then protect myself there, right? That's how all this works. The whiskey is working. <laughs> Makes so, perfect sense. Reuben Turner stabs this man and then immediately runs to the courthouse. And whilst in the courthouse, is still waving the knife around. <laughs> It's super effective. <laughs> he is waving a bloody knife in the jury room. One of the rooms, literally, he has barricaded himself in the jury room, is waving this knife around, and then oh, yelling man. to anyone who will listen, which is quite a few men, about how he that just followed him slowly <laughs> to the courthouse. And it, yeah, and is hollering to them about how he stabbed somebody, and this is the knife he used to kill him. And all that. And so just everyone was like, all right, Rube, 
<laughs> Ruby, calm down. You're uh you The screwed. trial's not till later, but <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for, for the confession. <laughs> thanks for the public confession in the middle of the courthouse. So <laughs> And somebody get some doctors, at least. <laughs> yeah, so at this point, everyone's like, we need doctors. This mm-hmm. is messed. This is jacked up. So Dr. Erskine and Dr. Watkins roll up. Hmm. Now, Logwood uh, had somehow gotten back to the Bell Tavern. Either someone helped him, yeah. or I think one of the witnesses that I didn't include in the notes talked about, you know, they he just limped over. Or like they saw someone approaching, like one person approaching mm-hmm. the Bell Tavern. So dude just like got stabbed and was like, oh, I need a drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Watkins gets Logwood back to the Bell Tavern or meets mm-hmm. him back there. And he takes him up to his room and he's inspecting him. And he's like, you're going to die. Because there was one large wound which had penetrated the cavity of the chest. Mm-hmm. And I, if I remember correctly from the actual court case, it was like two inches deep and three inches wide or something. Wow, that's pretty. Yeah, they'd measure gapey. the. Yeah, it was very gapy. Um, gaping wounds. So Erskine kind of hangs out with Logwood until he dies. Someone brings a dirk. Um, and. He's like, hey, man, is this your knife? It has your initials on it. And Logwood is Mm -hmm. like, yeah, put it over there. He's very, Mm -hmm. like, noncommittal. And so uh, languishing did die is the phrase that they always use. Excuse me. When someone is mortally injured but Mm -hmm. doesn't die until a few days later. Right. So Logwood kind of, like, just suffers through the night. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously is able to communicate like, okay, Ruben Turner, Ruben Turner stabbed me. Yeah. And then ran to the courthouse and told everyone that he did. Like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We've put this. Yeah. No, no mystery on this one. Yeah. So he lived. But it says his Dirk was bloody. So that's a, yeah. Um, In order to try and prove that Reuben Turner had acted in self-defense, a lot mm-hmm. of people were like, well, was was Logwood's knife damaged? Was there... Mm-hmm. And so, back over at the courthouse, jump cut, bell tavern to courthouse. <laughs> clink, clink. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, a lot of people are looking at Reuben Turner, and Reuben Turner does have uh, a series of injuries around his ears on his face, mm. and... Especially in this ear canal region where it looks like he's been cut very badly, like someone just tried to stab him in the head. Bam. Try to get through that ear canal. Exactly. And so uh, Dr. Watkins comes back later and is like, you know, this, the way the knife is damaged, it could definitely have resulted from the small bones on the inside of the ear. Mm. And then the other doctor in the story is Dr. Whedon again. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Whedon had, uh, we'll get to Dr. Whedon later. <laughs> he had described Logwood as very turbulent when drinking, but whatever. All right. So 
bam, Turner immediately goes to the local jail. Everyone's like, oh, didn't have to figure this one out. Right. Um, so they round him up. He goes to jail on August 7th, 1820. Mm-hmm. He's about to spend like the next three years there. Like just in the, in the jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get... Unless he walks out like... Some other, some of our other stories. <laughs> yeah, true. So there's, uh, there's kind of a lineup. You get, you know, James Eastland is the solicitor for the fifth district, whatever. Then Henderson Lewis is the attorney mm-hmm. for, for Reuben Turner. Um, and so one of the, I actually first encountered this case when we were in Mexico, and I was like, eh, this case is okay. Because mm-hmm. I didn't have all of this backstory, but one of the things that I thought differentiated it early on was how long the case is. Yeah. And so it looks like Joseph Eastland, I don't know if I said James Eastland earlier, it's retconned to Joseph. Joseph Eastland, I'd, he kind of like charged by the stab wound. Like each wound, he was like, he was like, this might have been the mortal one. And so... Right. He charged, the reason the case was so long that stood out is because usually people be like, all right, he stabbed him, and it's one. Right. But he was like, there were eight stabbings. So we have to describe, like, Dang. all of them. Yeah. And so it's a lot of the same thing. Right? I feel bad for the scribe, because he pretty <laughs> much had to rewrite the court case, like, five times yeah. in the middle of it. So, whatever. So... A lot of places where it repeats for emphasis. What Lewis does is he's like, oh, we're not going to get a good trial in Huntsville. This right. place where you ran into the courthouse and told everyone you killed a man. Everybody's been threatening everybody for a while. <laughs> everyone waves around knives. So There's, let's go next door. Yeah. So he tries to get a change of venue. Mm-hmm. It's denied. But after they do the denial, they get to they do a cause continued until February 1821. So they're just like, you know what? We're going to put a pause on it. We're going to pick this court case up later. Cool. Yeah. People will cool off. Maybe, exactly. maybe a little bit more. Exactly. Less bent on. <laughs> maybe they'll forget about that confession and the so, knife waving. <laughs> maybe. So the cause continued until February 1821, mm-hmm. September, uh, 1821, the jurors, the first jurors find him guilty. Henderson Lewis immediately turns around and is like, why shouldn't mm. we have another trial? And the judge is like, I can't actually, there's not, I mean, you can appeal, um, but we can't prove why we shouldn't have another trial. So I guess let's have another trial. <laughs> and, well, what are you guys doing? I'm not doing anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's this like September 1821 where they're like, all right, you're you're guilty. Yeah. And at that point he's been in jail for a year. Oh, okay. Right. And then it's like new trial. Cool. So in November 1822. Right? Like he's just he's like, "All right, I'm going to be in so jail." What's wacky is they left him in jail for a year <laughs> and then they're like, "You're guilty by the way." <laughs> <laughs> Right, it's like that's a little bit of time where he was just in jail, (laughs) pretty much. 
So in <laughs> November 1822, we get all these new jurors. Preston Yeatman, who is a member of the like council for Huntsville, mm-hmm. the early city council, uh, James Bradley, Henry A. Hunnewell, Robert W. Roberts, who I think is a justice of the peace, uh, Joseph Sate, Adram J. Few, Christopher Beeren, Joseph Steele, Burl Horton, George Led, Nathan Batty, and Lexington Kennedy. Four of those people will later submit a petition saying that Reuben Turner should not, you know, be executed. Be executed. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. We can uh, edit that out if you want. No, nah, it's fine. Um, <laughs> so. Dun, dun. Uh, clink, clink. Clink, clink, clink. <laughs> clink, clink. All right. So. It's been such a thing. It's been like two years of people going back and forth. He's been in jail the whole time. So. <laughs> yeah, he, he's just been like, I had him here. So there's all this happening. Uh, so the jury cannot agree. It's actually split six to six. All right. And so... They just didn't have odd number of jurors back then? You just... You always have 12. You always have 12. Oh. Yeah. I'm I'm woefully undereducated <laughs> for this podcast. The thirteenth juror. <laughs> they always do it. Um, yeah, they round up forty lawful men and then they mm-hmm. pick twelve. All right, so a local lawyer, I'm pretty sure, local man William B. Martin writes a letter to the governor, talking about how the judge C.C. Clay, who C.C. Clay, uh, Clement Comer Clay becomes like a huge, the member of the Clay dynasty. They're a huge political dynasty in Alabama. Um, I think they get a governor in there. I know that they get like some Confederate nonsense positions, but yeah. So the Clay families, they're a big deal. C.C. Clay is in here. Um, Gabriel Moore and C.C. Clay were two very important people in Mm -hmm. the history of the state of Alabama. Mortal enemies. And so there's this great story about them being the only two people on the same stagecoach. And so they just stared at each other in frosty rage and silence for like 400 miles. They were just, (laughs) (laughs) they didn't say a single word. They were just like, oh. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> um, so CC Clay. But how'd they tell the story if they're the only two there? I don't <laughs> plot pencils. <laughs> <laughs> they wrote it down. They're like, we both we just stared at each other. Yeah. I really hate that guy. <laughs> uh so William B. Martin, who's a local concerned, I think, lawyer, in a letter to the governor, talks about how this member of a really powerful political dynasty acted in a way which was apparent to any who heard it that the judge clearly thought defendant guilty guilty of murder, uh, which is a quote from the thing. So the jurors are split six to six and Clay orders the jurors to count the weird threats earlier as proof of malice. Mm. So the fact that Reuben Turner, rather than their earlier assumption had just been like heat of passion. He was drunk at a bar. It's fine. They're both stabbing. Everyone was waving a knife. Yeah. He was acting a fool. 
so um which i don't think is an amazing really argument <laughs> but it's it's still it's kind of like all right well it's not directly hit how he was acting in the bell tavern is not directly related to how he acted while he was stabbing you know thomas logwood so sure whatever no problem um but when the judge ordered that they should consider that as proof of malice, they were all like, oh, well, in that case, he's guilty. Hmm. Let's kill him. <laughs> so, um, but this did not sit well with a lot of people. Hmm. And of course, uh, William B. Martin has this great, great quote that a lot of people thought that there had been a miscarriage of justice, but because Reuben Turner was a bad man or like didn't pay his debts and drank too much or, you know, had had some running ends, they should kill him anyway. And William B. Martin hmm. is like, no, because if we let people do that, then gallows ought to be as plenty as cotton gins. Like if you could mm. just hang a man because he was right. a bad man, then It'd be everywhere. Exactly. Knocking everybody over. And then he was like, but a great number have an insatiable curiosity to see some fellow hang. And him as good as any. <laughs> okay. So they were pretty much everyone just wanted to show. They wanted to watch right, someone right. die. And right. like Ruben Turner was already there. And yeah. there may have he been. Stabbed a dude. There may have. I mean, it's very clear that he stabbed a dude, but. There may have been some other things that was happening. I don't know. But yeah. So he goes on uh, to tell the governor, he's like, at the end of it, he's like, I appeal to your experiences, to your experiences as a practicing lawyer. If they, meaning cases, don't frequently go on false premises, no premises, or shoot so wild as to amaze every intelligent mind. He's basically like, look, we both know this is this is a weird case. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of weird cases. Just because there's the first instinct doesn't mean that that should be the best mm -hmm. instinct, you know. And he's also talking about how, like, the way Logwood was acting, any honorable man would have yeah, killed anybody him. could have. Yeah. I mean, they're beating each other. They're swinging knives around. Yeah. Anybody could have been a stabber at that point, is what he's saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, December 6, 1822. Clink, clink. Clink, clink. They finally, yes, he's convicted. He's going to be executed. Uh, and then this pressure campaign almost immediately starts on the governor. So, on the 18th, William Martin writes the governor from Florence and has some of those amazing quotes about, you know, gallows ought to be as plenty as cotton gins and any honorable man would kill and all that. And mm -hmm. it's like, all right, man. So this pressure campaign starts. And at the same time, more details are leaking out. Mm. Dr. Whedon, who we talked about earlier, spent a lot of time, spent some time living with Logwood. Like literally they were in the same room in the bell tavern. Oh wow, okay. Because they would just shove beds in a room. Right. Like, you sleep here, you sleep there, shut up. <laughs> right? We ran out of room, sorry. We're a tavern, it's eighteen twenty. <laughs> Get off my face. So 
they were they would drink together and Logwood would just rant at Whedon about Turner. Mm. And so he would go off and be like, I may land in hell if I can't kill him. And then Whedon was like, hey, man, you already lost your money. All right. You're going to lose your money. But like, maybe let's not get on the hook for murder. Right. (laughs) And then so Logwood replied to that was as well as he remembered a law passed that there should be a catching before a hanging. So pretty much he's like, you can do whatever you want if they can't get a hold of you. Mm-hmm. So Logwood, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. And then t- I thought this was just a good visual because Whedon really went out of his way to mention it. When speaking on the subject, Logwood would rise up in bed. Like he'd get up and be like, I mean it. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> right. right, right. <laughs> that kind of like pushing yourself up to like mm-hmm, let everyone mm-hmm. know you're... <laughs> I'm not just going to lay here and say this. I'm going to kill him. Yeah. Uh, and then Lemuel Mead, who was a local court clerk, saw letters um, while while Mead was in Virginia. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're all visiting Virginia. They're all all over the Carolinas. It's a very they're a very moving around kind of people. Mm-hmm. So Mead was in Virginia visiting a man named Mr. Scruggs. And Logwood had written Mr. Scruggs. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so Meade, because there's nothing to do and everyone's bored, was real nosy one day and read the letters that Logwood (laughs) had sent to Mr. Scruggs. (laughs) And in it, uh, Logwood talks about how he plans to break his vows and do all he could to leave life or destroy Turner. Hmm. He's like, I'm not going to pay none of this money. I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to kill him. Right. And so it's like. So one of us, like, he'll be on the hook, but he'll be dead. Exactly. Exactly. So all of this stuff starts to come out. All of this new, all of this evidence. Mm -hmm. And there's this pressure campaign. Four of the jurors sign a petition saying, hey, we, you know, we sentenced him to death but we understand that it was a really weird court case there was a lot of history here yeah there was a lot of probably been waving knives for years (laughs) it sounds like (laughs) i mean there was a lot of back and forth yeah yeah so they were like all right yeah maybe we don't kill him and then 18 more people and then suddenly there's all of these folks (laughs) coming from virginia Mm -hmm. right and so Apparently he told everybody. <laughs> Pretty much. So Reuben Turner's relatives uh, start sending petitions, and I actually got to find the petition from like, oh nice from his relatives, mm-hmm. from his mother, and all that. And it's you know super extra. Uh, they're in there. They're like, we're not only humble, but we are your humbled supplicants. And talking about how we're double humble, y'all. Double humble. <laughs> so humble. And they're going off about how like um just this aged mother worrying all hours of the night about her son and everyone praying that you could either pardon him or give him another reprieve so that more stuff could come to light. Mm-hmm. And it's just all this. And it really affects the governor. Right. Really affects him. And so, you know, he writes about how the 
pious prayers of a mother uh, turned him around Mm -hmm. and how he got a former governor of Virginia to send a, an account of Reuben Turner because during the war of 1812 Turner had joined like the local 20th infantry Mm -hmm. regiment or whatever. And so, you know, the, former the former governor who had been commander of Ruben's unit mm. of Ruby's unit sorry during the war yeah. of 1812 was like yeah he was he was a good soldier so all of this really gets to Pickens he's like all right that's fine we're going to do a respite until June the man lives for a while yeah and and so we'll just wait until June and this is in February that this happens mm-hmm. right and so then April 4th, 1823, really important date for the Reuben Turner saga. On that day, something like 10 people escape from the Madison County Jail or like the Huntsville Jail in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Originally, Reuben is one of them, but he's like, it is real cold. So he goes back and he wakes up the jailer, Daniel Rather, and he's like, hey, man, a bunch of people broke out. <laughs> just letting you know <laughs> seeing as this is your job you might be fired tomorrow but <laughs> for tonight you're trying to find prisoners <laughs> so many people broke out of jail while daniel rather was the guard <laughs> that it's like not even a thing like it's <laughs> it's just like oh another jailbreak daniel rather really he gotta he's gotta figure something out you know he's got gout, so he can't walk that fast, and you know, you know. <laughs> one of it's really interesting because uh, one of the people that I think broke out as well, uh, because it talks about no less than six of the people were there for capital offenses. Oh, great, and I think it might have been Burkett Green was in there at the same time, and it's Burkett Green was also in the book because Burkett Green was like a terrifying murderer. Uh. He would just like stamp on your stomach until you bled to death. Right. And so Joseph Eastland is in there is he's written a letter after this jailbreak to the governor. And he's like, uh, I, you know, he's like, I think Reuben Turner might deserve some clemency. There's a lot of issues or whatever. And then mm-hmm. right after that, he's like, but definitely kill Burkett Green. <laughs> <laughs> that dude is messed up. <laughs> 100% hang this man. Like, you have to. And it was just really, like, I think the first time I read it, I, 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 I guffawed. Right. Like, I was just like, what? <laughs> My wife was like, what? Yeah, I was what like, just happened? I was like, oh, there's like five minutes of backstory here that I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Pray for her. She knows what she's getting into. Yeah. She's been around this for a minute. <laughs> and so everyone is like, well, if you know, if he came back, he couldn't have been that bad. Right. And so, like, that's one of the... One of his little... Yeah, like... One, one of the little things th- tips the scale. Exactly. He's like, well, his mom prays about him, and... Uh, it was he cold, was, and he, was, he just came back. <laughs> he was in the army, and he came back from a jail escape. I, you know, even if he did stab that man in the chest, <laughs> like, maybe he's a good guy. 
we all wave some knives around when we're drunk. Exactly. <laughs> so then Henry Minor and Henry Minor is um yeah, he was like the city attorney for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one of yeah, these same gentlemen. Yeah, he's one of these very powerful lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. Um Henry Minor writes to the governor and says the execution of Turner under existing circumstances would probably place the character of the state for public justice in in a very unfortunate light. Mm-hmm. And so it's like Henry Minor's like, look, man. Yeah, it would just it would be it would look bad. People have been doing a lot of work to We probably shouldn't kill this guy. Mm-hmm. And so by July 1823. There's so much buzz about this case. People have been talking about it for years. Uh, yeah, it's been. In, yeah, I mean, he's been in jail for years. He's been like, he's been in jail for three years. People are like, look, the it happened. Logwood was trying to kill him or plotting to kill him, and said so very publicly mm-hmm. to a lot of people for some reason. Um, and. You know, they were friendly. Sure, he was talking about cutting off Samuel Bennett's ears, but it's Samuel Bennett. (laughs) Uh, And he's been in jail for three years. Why don't we let the kid go free? Mm -hmm. So everyone had gotten to that point. It it was either they were there or they were like, we would love to see a hanging. Like, those were the... Those were the The camps. Those were the camps. (laughs) Um... So the governor writes J.M. Taylor, who is the who was the prosecutor for the state and H. Lewis, Henderson Lewis. And he says it's urgently necessary to correct the serious miscomprehensions of the moment that I've yielded to this development. And this this development is something that uh, I don't know, I think was just not fathomable for them. The Reuben Turner case had become such an issue mm-hmm. that they had to put out all of their evidence in the public eye. Wow. Yeah. So they went and they got C.C. Clay to publish all of his notes. Mm-hmm. Or like they got all of his notes. They got a lot of the court transcripts. A lot of documents that don't survive until the present day to where like I get to take a look at them. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause usually what I get is like, you know, the last bare bones sort of right. Right. Annotated. It. Yeah. It's very sterile. <laughs> there were some witnesses and they said this. they were convincing. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Pretty. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is like every bit yeah this is all over the place people are like he took 10 or 15 steps it was no less than 30 seconds when they returned it's like all right man this is that's cool though you get to like see so much i mean that's why i've really enjoyed uh spending the past week or so taking this one apart so they're like bam we're going to we're going to pardon this young man, mm-hmm. but we have to do so and explain it in such a way that the public can tolerate it. Right. So they do on July 13th, 1823, they do a full spread special edition in the Alabama Republican. Mm. 
in which probably the first time that's been done. <laughs> yeah, like I was saying, like the uh, the newspapers were all just ads, and so you know if two lawyers had a falling out, you might get an ad about that where they're like, "We're no longer partners." Or right. this guy's trash in a really nice way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean exactly. So the only thing that was local were like ads and jail escapes and. When enslaved people escaped, they would put mm-hmm. out like descriptions of them. And one time, this farmer in Newmarket found a really cool tortoise and brought it to Huntsville, and people put that in the paper. <laughs> but prior to this, <laughs> uh, there was not a lot of local focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and even afterwards, there wasn't much. It was just, it was, this was such an anomaly. Kind of like today, you know, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> This was like such an aberration that the uh, the local newspaper actually talked about it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, prior to this, I there's been papers, there's been editions of the Alabama Republican that were just a bunch of ads and then a segment about the Kraken and then more ads and then that's it. All right. Right, like... The the paper is usually very bare bones, uh-huh. or you know, there's like two guys who are playfully insulting each other, uh-huh. or there's like sometimes a barbecue. People are like we're gonna have a barbecue, but it's not really until like 1825 that you start, 1824, 1825 that you start seeing this mm-hmm. sort of like oh we finally have enough people to, and so this is like right before that. Hmm. It's really neat. It kind of shows you the growth of the area too. Like yeah, yeah. First civilian. It seems like the the like lawyers getting power just in this pseudo frontier zone is really interesting just to me. Because like the court doesn't have power unless you know you can throw someone in jail or something. So it's kind of like all that stuff has to. Yeah, nucleize. and very much the history of the Southern United States is just the history of very violent lawyers. Mm. I mean, they're they're definitely like one of the driving forces, like violent in their the how they like uh, prosecute or just... no, I'm just saying like they killed people. Okay, and stuff. Just straight up violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like attacking. I haven't read people. as many court cases <laughs> as you. <laughs> You're just like yeah, obviously. <laughs> Beating people with canes and then going to court to defend themselves. <laughs> well, for a cane beating, though, they probably didn't bring that to court. Come on. No, yeah. They, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 A little bit. Um, so full spray, full whole extra edition of Alabama mm-hmm. Republican where they've got clay's notes in there and they've got testimony from the trial and they've got uh summaries of pardon petitions yeah and all of this stuff and they have they even have like copies of former respite orders that the governor has issued Mm -hmm. it's just it's it's a whole lot right in a very small space um, and then right in the middle of the page, they have every lawyer in the city of Huntsville who is, uh, petitioning or just sort of agreeing, signing on to it, sort signing of signing on to endorsing it, I guess, endorsing it. 
that Reuben Turner should be pardoned. And so July 1823, Reuben Turner's pardoned. He gets to walk out. He's like, I was in there three years. Clink, clink. <laughs> clink, clink. <laughs> uh, not over, though. No, so, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, there's more, more for the paper to do, too. There's <laughs> a little bit more. So about two, about a, a week later, the paper runs this, and they have like a little comment section that they've been developing. Mm-hmm. And so they just run Reuben Turner again. <laughs> Ruby's back at it again. Right. And so they had a section um, just talking about Reuben Turner mm-hmm. and with um, some more stuff from the trial. They had a section just clarifying. But my absolute favorite thing is in that July, after the pardon, apparently a rumor had developed that Mrs. Logwood was supporting the cause of Reuben Turner Mm -hmm. and saying that he should be freed from jail. So after Thomas Logwood died... Uh, the widow, Mrs. Logwood, we know we don't know her first name, unfortunately. The widow went and remarried very quickly. It's a thing that you do. You you just remarry. Mm-hmm. So her new last new she married a man man named John Tate, new last name Tate. Um, so John Tate is so pissed off by this rumor that he goes and takes out an ad in the Alabama Republican. <laughs> Where he's talking about, like, if anyone seriously believes that she endorsed the freeing of, you know, her husband's killer, former husband's killer, um, you know, get out of here. He's very upset with you. Whatever. We don't want to hear it. (laughs) And then he implies that it's part of a secret plot to absolve the governor of guilt and will not. Yeah. You know, just. To be like, well, if she was okay with it, then how can the governor say no or Mm -hmm. whatever? And then at the very end, he's like, he will not hesitate to pronounce him an insidious villain that would propagate a report calculated to wound the feelings of his family. And so that's it started, I guess, with some talking and it ended with some talking. (laughs) And that's really... And the Bell Tavern. And the Bell Tavern. And that's really it. That is... <laughs> that's the basics about Reuben Turner. And he's a heck of a case. I'm sure there's more that I'm going to learn later. And I'll have to come back and be like, Reuben uh, Turner, abridged. But the, the second Ruby. Ruby 2. Ruby 2. Electric Boogaloo, except they don't have electricity yet. So Yeah, we're not there yet, guys. We've got a lot more history to go through. Ruby 2. Steam Boogaloo. <laughs> Well, guys, thank you for joining us for this Hunts Villain. Wave your knives safely. Um, I don't know what else to say about that one. Like, enjoy your bacon and corn whiskey as we do in Alabama. Um, <laughs> if you're going to cut off someone's ears, at least be memorable. Right. Do it right, or you may end up <laughs> like some fellas we just talked about. Samuel Bennett. Just like, I don't even remember. I don't, I don't know if he wanted to cut off my ears. <laughs> Maybe. I feel like Samuel Bennett's gonna come up again. So, Sammy he, B, he's already he's already been in the 
what I thought was really interesting was in one of the depositions, they claimed that Samuel Bennett had an alias and that it was Dr. Kimball. And I was like, that's crazy. I don't, (laughs) why would that, why just throw that little bit of flavor in there? If you're not going to give me more, it's not even right. Yeah. Cause one of them was like, this guy sounds like a real stir, dude. Right. He is stirring all sorts of pots. I mean, one of them, they were like, Dr. Bennett. And then they called him Samuel Bennett the rest of the time. And then the other one's like, Dr. Kimball, a.k.a. Samuel Bennett. And I'm just like, what is he doing? <laughs> Whatever he was doing, he was being threatened in very colorful ways. This guy was living life to the fullest. <laughs> <laughs> but is there any news on the book? Can we talk anything about that? Like, um, You're in the editing zone, right? Yeah, yeah. We're just really at this point waiting uh for the illustrations and then i'm editing because we talking multiple illustrations yeah 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 yeah. there's gonna be like an illustration collage on the cover supposedly hopefully um and people have done like original art for it so this is awesome man yeah yeah i'm excited um it turns out some of the things i wrote were non were not sentences (laughs) like reading them again later i'm like this is just ramble this is crazy person like so what time of night do you think those were produced i would or morning 8 (laughs) a.m i'm coming in hot i've got a great idea coming in bad (laughs) uh coming in not coming in not guys (laughs) so that's pretty much the next step is to clean all of that up. Yeah. And um, especially on some of the more sensitive mm. topics, because yeah. I do talk. Uh, I turned a section into like hate crimes. Mm. And it's just like, man, this yeah, you want to put in the work to make it like respectful. And yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely that's step one is and like, detailed. Yeah. Especially because no one really talks about like no one really talks about brutality or like slavery in Madison County much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even, even some of the big names in local, in local history, um, like Sarah Huff Fisk or Francis Roberts, they were putting out books in the nineties where they were Mm -hmm. like, and then the good slaves. And it's like, buddy, you got, whoa, you got, um, what is this? <laughs> just the words. Yeah. But but it's also, yeah, I've seen just publications about um, the area, and they just skip over a big portion of our history. Yeah. Like, there's, what's this giant hole? <laughs> what what happened here? Wow, it turns <laughs> so out everything. got every... <laughs> here, and then some stuff. It turns out yeah, everything was, was fine until 1960. Yeah, yeah. Was, but thank you so much. Man, so much work. Got to say, you you humble me, double humbled by the amount of research double you put humbled, in this. I'm double, double humbled, humble, dude. Callback earlier in the episode. <laughs> hey, callback. <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking forward to many more. Hunts Villain is a podcast recorded at Spice Rack Studios in Huntsville, Alabama. You can check out John's blog with information from the podcast and more info at huntsvillain.wordpress.com and on Facebook under Hunts Villain. The podcast is hosted and written by Mr. John O'Brien and co-hosted by Ben Job. 
Thank you to our donors and volunteers who are the sole supporters of Spice Radio. If you want to help support Spice Radio, go to SpiceRadioHuntsville.com and click Donate. And remember, you can find great local music and podcasts 24-7 at SpiceRadioHuntsville.com. Thanks for listening, and stay spicy.